Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp of Return to the New Books Network, the History Channel. I'm here today with Associate Professor Christy Clark-Pujara. She is the Associate Professor of History in the Department of Afro-American Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In 2016, she published um, under NYU Press, Dark Work, The Business of Slavery in Rhode Island. The paperback uh, was actually released last year, and it will be the topic of our discussion today. Welcome, Professor, to the show. Thank you for having me. So before we dive in, uh, can you tell us a little bit about this the striking cover, the Slater Mill and the Newport map uh, that you um, that you selected uh, or helped select for the cover? Yeah, so I chose both the Newport um, port as well as the Slater Mill um, because they're representative of the business of slavery in Rhode Island. Uh, slave ships left out of Newport and slave pick cotton came into the Slater Mill. Um, and I wanted the cover to either inform and or remind people that the North was deeply invested in slavery um, because many people uh, tend to think of American slavery as a Southern institution. So what prompted you to study the business of slavery in Rhode Island? How do you define the business of slavery in your book? So I went to graduate school to be a labor historian. My father was in a union and he was um, not literate, uh, but he had had union jobs his entire life. And I knew that the union had afforded us a lifestyle that even allowed me to go to college. Um, And so I was very much interested in that. And I went to the University of Iowa in Iowa City, and they wanted us to be wide. They wanted us to be able to teach across the spectrum. And so I took U.S. history of slavery um, because I needed to be a little bit wider in what I was studying. And I read Joanne Pope Mellish's Disowning Slavery, um, which is about how Northerners forgot their history of slaveholding. And I was just entranced. And in that class for my research paper, I decided to do Northern slavery, which I knew nothing about. I associated American slavery with the American South. And so through that research paper, I was reading everything I could on Northern slavery. And I realized that that's what I wanted to do, that that's something that was of incredible interest to me. And so I began looking for a possible topic. And two things stood out to me um, about Rhode Island. One was that Rhode Islanders dominated the North American trade in slaves And there was a curiously high number of enslaved people in Rhode Island by the middle of the 18th century. About 10% of the population was enslaved, and that was double the northern average. Um, So I began wondering what caused that, and was there a connection to slave trading and the business of slavery? And so I began to look for the book on slavery in Rhode Island, and I couldn't find it. Um, And so I got really excited. People had talked about it kind of in fits and starts or, um, you know, in different eras, but not a comprehensive study of slavery in the colony and then the state of Rhode Island. And so that became my dissertation topic. Um, As far as how I define the business of slavery, I define the business of slavery as all economic activity that was directly related to the maintenance of slaveholding in the Americas, specifically the buying and selling of people, foods, and goods. So the business of slavery as distinct from the institution of slavery 
which allowed New England and Rhode Island in particular to become an economic powerhouse without ever producing a staple crop or cash crop. What evidence can you provide to substantiate your contention that, among the New England states, Rhode Island was the most deeply entrenched in the West Indian and African slave trades? If possible, please also elaborate on your argument that the Narragansett country in southern Rhode Island was a slave society within a society with slaves. Well, to your first question about the evidence about um, the deep entrenchment of Rhode Island in the business of slavery, um, I'm joining a large cadre of historians uh, that have pointed this out. Uh, Jay Cotry's Notorious Triangle, Elaine Crane's A Dependent People, um, really lay out how deeply invested Rhode Islanders were in slavery. Um, But I point to the Atlantic slave trade to begin with. So of all the North American colonists and then American citizens that were engaged in the slave trade, Rhode Islanders dominated that trade. Um, Upwards of 60% of every slave ship that left out of a port in in North America left from Rhode Island, um, which is teeny tiny, just 30 by 40 miles. Um, They by far eclipse um, all of the other northern colonies, southern colonies, and then later states in the transport of people from Africa to the Americas. Um, And you can just go to the transatlantic slave trade database um, and see these estimates and these voyages and these manifest. It's not something that's contested. It just is. Um, And within the slave trade, that also was central to the economy in Rhode Island. You need shipbuilders, you need iron maker, um, iron workers to make, um, shackles. You need sailors. You need goods to put on these ships. You need people to uh, put those goods onto those ships. But more than that, you also have the Narragansett country, which is in the southern half of Rhode Island, um, involved in the business of slavery as well. And they're involved in a bilateral trade between um, Rhode Island and the West Indies or the Caribbean, as some people call it. Um, they are providing the West Indies with critical food. Um, So everything from cattle, so beef, fish, amounts of vegetables, you know, carrots, onions, potatoes, uh, things that nobody in Europe wants to trade with them are critical trade goods in the West Indies because all of the arable land, save for a few slave gardens, are being used for the production of sugar. Um, And this food trade was so important that during the American Revolution, there is famine uh, when they cannot get the food out with with the British blockades to the West Indies. More than that, they're providing the West Indies with candles um, and firewood that is lighting and powering the sugar mills 24 hours a day. And what they get in return, what Rhode Islanders get in return is molasses and a little bit of cash. The cash is important because this is primarily a barter economy, but the molasses is key because the molasses is the key ingredient in the number one export of Rhode Island to Europe and then to West Africa as well, which is rum. So in the city of Newport, for instance, there are 16 distilleries in the colonial period alone. Um, And so the whole of the economy is caught up in the business of slavery. As far as the Narragansett country being considered a slave society within a society with slaves, 
Ira Berlin, um, the late and great Ira Berlin, defines a slave society um, as a place where slave labor is key to um, the economy, to production. And that was the case in the Narragansett country. You have enslaved people who are growing these um, fruit, these vegetables, who are taking care of cows and producing cheese, who are caring for livestock that's just going to be transported, who are caring for the Narragansett pacers that are then transported to the West Indies. Um, it is their labor that is at the center of that local economy. And that is also reflected in the politics of the area. Narragansett planters, as they like to call themselves, they weren't really planters because most of them didn't own enough slaves to be planters, but they called themselves that, um, dominated local politics. And they also served um, in the larger government as, as governors. And so this is a place where the labor of enslaved people is central to the economy, politics, and society as a whole. Now, you contend that the institution of slavery in Rhode Island began as a system of bondage for captured and impoverished Native Americans, but flourished as a system committed to black bondage. Please elaborate on this transition, addressing subsequent codes for slaves and, quote, slave-like peoples as chattel, as well as the experiences of free people of color. So starting in the first decades of the 18th century, white Rhode Islanders replaced a familiar, dangerous population the natives with uh, black people that they called strangers. In 1652, officials in Providence and Warwick forbade lifelong bondage for whites and blacks, which leaves indigenous people. Um, but in 16, uh, sorry, in 1676, they also banned lifelong servitude for Native Americans. Um, and so you have these local bans on slavery initially um, that identify the groups that can't be enslaved. And by the time you get to 1776, it's virtually everyone, white people, black people, and indigenous people. Nevertheless, in 1703, white Rhode Islanders begin legislating as if race-based slavery were the law. Um, and there's this law that's written in 1703, and I'll just read it uh, to give you a sense of the flavor. If any Negroes or Indians, either freemen, servants, or slaves, do walk in the street of the town of Newport or any other town in this colony after nine of the clock of the night without a certificate from their masters or some English person of said family with them or some lawful excuse for the same, that it shall be lawful for any person to take them up and deliver them to the constable. The first thing you notice in this law is that it is identifying Black people and Indigenous people as slaves, right? And also saying that even if they're not a slave, if they're a servant or they're a free person, there are special rules and laws for them that don't apply to white people. Um, and that all white people are in a position of authority over them. All white people can report them to the constable. Five years later, in 1708, Rhode Island's Colonial Assembly further endorsed and protected slavery by forbidding whites from socializing with black slaves and Indian servants. And black slaves and Indian servants are direct quotes from that law. And because a collective body, the Rhode Island General Assembly, passes both the 1703 law and the 1708 law, 
it supersedes any local um, bans against slavery. And they are clearly identifying a race-based institution. And then after that, you get a series of laws just legislating about what slaves, what enslaved people can do and what they can't do, whether or not they can board ferries, who they can socialize with, when they can be out. Um, and so Rhode Islanders begin to do what their neighbors were already doing, which is practice race-based slavery. How and why did urban, rural, and maritime geographic patterns of Rhode Island slaveholding fracture slave families and generate varieties of unfree labor? Can you also substantiate your contention that the Narragansett country featured a distinctive Black culture? Okay, so the pattern of slaveholding in the North in general, um, and in Rhode Island as well, led to families being separated on a regular basis. Uh, when most people think about American slavery, they may think about Amer- uh, American Southern plantation slavery, where there is a slave quarter, where there are dozens of enslaved people living together. That is not the case in the North. Enslaved people are living in the households of their masters, of their enslavers, and most enslaved people are either in a household by themselves or with one other enslaved person. And so this means husbands and wives live separately. It means brothers and sisters live separately. It means parents and children um, live separately. And it's because of the needs of the enslaver class. They're not interested in the labor of an entire family, but in the labor of one or two enslaved people. But that has serious consequences for enslaved people who then can't live as family units. Um, And so the pattern of slaveholding itself, the absence of any slave quarter, leads to a really isolating and lonely experience for most enslaved people in the North. Um, As far as the contention that the Narragansett country uh, featured a distinctive Black culture, it's not so much the Narragansett country, but enslaved African Americans in the North at large found ways to come together and create their own community and practice their own cultural um, their own cultural traditions. Most notably, these are called um, Negro election days. And starting as early as the late 17th century, enslaved communities in the North begin to gather annually to feast, to dance, to play games, to drink, to gamble, and to sometimes elect an honorary governor or king who would rule for the duration of these festivities. For a day or two, enslaved people gathered to reconnect, rejuvenate. And this was especially important to people who are living in isolated conditions. These annual festivals that typically took place in the spring um, were known as Negro Election Days throughout New England and Pinkster Days elsewhere in the Northeast. Dancing was a key part of what made these celebrations distinctly Black, both a reflection of African and African-American culture, because dancing and music were sacred for people of African descent. Moreover, dance can be extremely subtle means of perpetuating values, particularly since the oppressor doesn't have a handle on the meanings, right? So these kinds of dances were, um, they seemed alien to the enslaver class that comments on them, but doesn't understand them. Um, In the Northern and Southern colonies, dance and music were the most important forms of self-expression available to ordinary Black men and women and children. Um, However, these types of festivals were a Northern phenomenon. 
how and why did increased freedom of movement and association, despite prohibitions thereof, result in slave dissidents? In a response, please provide examples of such dissidents as well. Well, the first thing is, it's just the interactions with people who aren't enslaved, both white and black, are an immediate and present reminder of their bondage and the indignities attached to it. And also, if you have some freedom of movement and association, you know people and you have conversations that are outside the control of your enslaver. You're able to create networks, friendships, and acquaintances that cannot be controlled by your enslaver. You also get a sense of the lay of the land, um, where what is, what times of day places are crowded or not crowded. Um, So part of it is just practical. Um, And so you get If you look at runaway ads, it becomes really clear that those people that are most likely to run away are often the people that are most the best positioned to do so. They're somebody who works in the trades, who has been rented out by their enslaver to someone else and knows the city and has a skill um, that they can receive ready cash for. So you take someone like Quam, an enslaved man in 1770, who did just that. Um, His enslaver places this ad in the Providence Gazette saying that Quam is usually out drinking with friends and acquaintances on Sunday, but he didn't return home this time. And he thinks that his friends have helped him escape and disappear into a different city. Can you trace the rise of the gradual emancipation movement uh, briefly in wartime and peacetime Rhode Island laws and society? from the 1773 Quaker reconceptualization of equality to the 1784 Act for the Gradual Abolition of Slavery for, quote, all children born to slave mothers. For the 1784 Act, if possible, you also address uh, children under 20 years of age versus children over 21 years of age. So the gradual emancipation itself wasn't a movement per se, but a response to the breakdown of slavery. So in Rhode Island, you see the breakdown of slavery begin in that revolutionary period in the early 1770s. Um, Quakers begin to question whether or not you can be a good slaveholder, and they come to the conclusion that you cannot be. And most scholars think that this is also about their reckoning with everyone having an inner light and that inner light being equal in every person. And if every person has an equal inner light, then no one has the right to own another person. And so Quakers begin to emancipate their slaves in order to cleanse their souls. Um, And of course, they are also dealing with revolutionary rhetoric that is challenging all types of class and status distinctions, saying that people should be judged on their talents and what they can bring to their table, not the position at which they were born into. And so all of these things are are colliding. And at the same time, African-Americans are too influenced by revolutionary rhetoric. And they are pushing back against the institution of slavery. And they are joining patriot armies and taking advantage of the chaos of war to run away and bargaining with their masters and pushing for their own freedom. And all of this is working together to tear at the fabric of slavery in Rhode Island. 
And there's just enough room for African-Americans to do that in Rhode Island, because what is most important to the economy in the colony and then state as a whole is not the labor of enslaved people, but the business of slavery itself. And during the revolutionary period, there's such an attack on the trade between Rhode Islanders and the West Indies um, that people have been economically pushed out of that. And so they're less interested in the labor of, of enslaved people, but most interested in preserving the economic importance of the business of slavery in that place. And so that's why we see a Gradual Emancipation Act in 1784. Not surprisingly, it's spearheaded by Quakers like Moses Brown, um, who feel like they need to disassociate from slavery to cleanse their souls. Um, But there also are non-Quakers who just cannot jive slaveholding with the new revolutionary rhetoric, with the new republic. And there's enough of them to um, pass a gradual emancipation law. And the gradual emancipation law says that the children of enslaved women born after March 1st of 1784 will not be enslaved for life, but indentured to their mother's masters. So that means a child born a day before March 1st of 1784 would still be a slave for life in Rhode Island. And children born after that date are going to be um, bound labor to their mothers and slaver until they reach their majority. Duly noted. So please describe the circumstances of the 1787 Rhode Island ban on the Atlantic slave trade and the founding of the Providence Abolition Society. Why did certain slave traders disregard the ban and what were the consequences? The authors of the 1787 uh, slave trade ban explicitly connected slave trading and slaveholding and insisted that emancipation would only be complete by bringing the slave trade as a whole to the end, to an end. The condemnation of slavery led to the condemnation of the slave trade itself, even though it was a crucial component of the economy. And this was the first time that Rhode Island legislators had passed legislation that directly impeded slave-related business. Um, And this really speaks to how many Rhode Island legislators had become abolitionist at this point, seeing the state directly disinvesting in the business of slavery. The 1787 Act had very stiff penalties Any resident convicted of importing or, more importantly, transporting African slaves was fined 100 pounds, and those found guilty of smuggling a vessel of slaves were fined 1,000 pounds. The problem is there was zero enforcement. There was no enforcement arm of this, and slave traders acted with impunity. They had initially fought against the law. Jay Cotry's Notorious Triangle actually outlines this very well. They gave testimony after testimony about how their business was central to the economic well-being of Rhode Island and that it would be lunacy to get rid of it. The legislation passed anyway, but you wouldn't know if you were on the docks of Bristol, Rhode Island, because there's actually more people transported after the band than before. Like if we look at the colonial numbers versus the post-colonial numbers of um, Africans transported uh, by Rhode Islanders. And they, like I said, acted with impunity. 
uh, between 1789 and 1793, the slave trade grew by 30% in the state, and the city of Bristol saw tremendous growth as the DeWolfs, along with other local businessmen, sponsored 17 slave voyages in just four years. There was so much traffic in Bristol Bay that Representative John Brown, who was also slave trading at the time, lobbied for a local custom house in Bristol so that merchants who sailed out of the bay would not have to register in Newport. And all of these papers are filed officially. So no one was trying to do this undercover. Um, And what sense I can make of it is that this law may have looked good on paper for abolitionists, but when it came to actually enforcing it and disinvesting the state in the business of slavery, there was zero appetite to do it. Um, when reality really uh, met ideology. What was the later Rhode Island Negro cloth industry, quoting your book? And how did manufacturers and distributors such as the Hazards reconcile this industry with anti-slavery sentiments? So in the antebellum era, Rhode Islanders remained heavily invested in the business of slavery, and they do so through the textile industry. Uh, especially the manufacture of something that was called Negro cloth, which is this coarse cotton wool material made especially to minimize the cost of clothing enslaved people. It's really the precursor to the gene. Levi Strauss ends up buying a their patent from a Negro cloth industry in Rhode Island. So it's this tough material um, that also moves with you, is easy to clean. Um, but something that um, can hold up to a lot of work. At one point, there are 80 different Negro cloth mills in in Rhode Island. That means at every river fall, you have the production of slave clothing. And this is an industry that is doubly dependent. And what I mean by that is they're using slave-grown cotton to create a manufactured cloth that is then sold exclusively to slaveholders in the American South. So slaveholders are their only clients. No one else is wearing Negro cloth except for enslaved people um, in the American South. And people like Rosen Gibson Hazard, who himself called himself anti-slavery, who railed against slaveholding in the Rhode Island state legislature, really reconcile their dependence on both slave labor and the bodies of enslaved people by saying what they can control in their own state, they can't control in another state. So what I mean is someone like Roland Gibson Hazard reconciled his tolerance of the existence of slavery in the Southern states and his own investments in it by clinging to an ideology of states' rights. I think he also dealt with it by trying to assuage his guilt by making sure that slavery was upstanding in the South. And by upstanding, I mean that free Black Northerners who found themselves illegally enslaved in the South, especially sailors um, who would sail into Southern ports and often be kidnapped into slavery. He tried to make sure that kind of thing didn't happen where he was. He spent his own money and hired a lawyer and had him interview people at a local jail who claimed to be free black sailors. And then that lawyer traveled north to get affidavits from white people who knew them and took them to a judge. And he was instrumental in helping to free over a hundred illegally enslaved black men uh, in Louisiana. 
And I think that that is one of the many ways that he dealt with his guilt um, over participating in a business, um, in an institution that he says he abhorred, but it was an institution that his family was doubly dependent upon. What were employment avenues for free men and women of color in early 19th century Rhode Island? In addition, how did such peoples find legal as well as extra legal employment and miss poor laws and race riots? Um, so the avenues were rather narrow. Um, uh, freed African-Americans found themselves at the bottom of the totem pole. Uh, many of them were doing labor they had done in slavery, except for the trades. So free black men are pushed out of the trades um, and confined almost solely to day labor. Um, what was called unskilled labor at the time, but definitely had skilled. So they were porters, they were grooms, they were handymen, they were ditch diggers, servants, wagon team drivers, painters, cooks, stevedores. Um, according to the 1825 Providence City Directory, 60% of free black men were classified just as laborers. You have very few black people in the professions. There wasn't a large enough black population to sustain um, um, to sustain professions like um, uh, doctors and lawyers and that kind of thing. And you also have a significant number of black men working as sailors. Um, they found a niche in the sailing industries, um, whether it be merchant ships or whaling ships, uh, where there was a demand uh, for labor. As far as black women, they're doing much of the same work they had done in slavery. They're cleaning, they're washing, they're weaving, they're sewing, they're doing childcare, paper making, soap making. Um, where you don't find black people, which is actually surprising if you really stop and think about it, is in the Negro cloth factories. Uh, they are shut out of factories almost entirely, even though an entry-level factory operative would not have to possess any particular skill. They would be taught that on the job. But factories were seen as spaces for white work and not black work. And so black people found themselves um, in a very limited employment opportunity. As far as extra legal, many people um, did things like, you know, sell without licenses, uh, you know, run boarding houses or informal bars, um, that kind of thing. And as far as the poor laws went, uh, they violated them. Uh, the poor law said that you weren't supposed to live in a place you hadn't been born or bound. But the economy in Newport really had bottomed out. Um, after the revolutionary period and took decades to recover. Um, and so many black folks moved to Providence, even though they're not necessarily supposed to. And when they get caught and kicked out of Providence, they just come back anyway. Please briefly discuss the uplift ideology, as well as the black nationalism of African-American mutual aid societies and churches in 19th century Rhode Island. In your response, if you can, uh, please ad also address gender and class dynamics, internal debates over African colonization, and the educational goals of, as well as internal tensions within, those benevolent societies. So Black Rhode Islanders, like their counterparts throughout the North, were increasingly committed to uplift ideology. Up to, 
uplift ideology was the belief that Blacks could obtain social and political equality through education or good behavior, similar to respectability politics now. They believed that individual self-improvement would help undermine racism. Many advocates of uplift ideology also shunned public displays of their African identity. They characterized such displays as common or unpatriotic and believed Blacks should demonstrate their patriotism and worthiness for full inclusion in American society by living frugal and virtuous lives. This argument was not uncontested as leaders in Black communities throughout the North cautioned against a sole focus on moral improvement, asserting that Black racial progress also demanded the inclusion of African identity, burial practices, dance, and public celebration. Black Rhode Islanders came together to build institutions and to fight for their rights as free people. They established several mutual aid societies, most notably the Free African Union Society in 1780, which was the first of its kind in the country, the African Benevolent Society of 18, in 1807, the Free Female African Benevolent Society in 1808, and the African Union Meeting House in 1819, to name a few. These mutual aid societies were of special value to developing communities because they helped create and institutionalize different roles, relationships, and values and ways of thinking and living outside the institution of slavery. You know, these are places where Black people could be leaders. They also served a really practical purpose. So people paid small dues to be part of these societies. So if you lost your job, you could go to the society for food or rent money. Um, If you were a member of this society, you also could expect to be buried by that society. And your widow could receive some payments if she found herself in financial strife. These organizations also provide some of the first educational opportunities um, for for, um, free African sorry, for African-Americans in the region. And so they were multifaceted um, and really important. But there was also, of course, not um, complete agreement within the societies. You have some segments of people who think that racism is so bad in the United States that the only thing they can do is leave. And you have other people who are not supportive of African colonization, of leaving the United States for Africa, saying, this is our country. My father or they themselves had fought in the American Revolution and that they had investments in being an American. Um, And although they would not have called themselves Black nationalists, that language didn't exist, they were doing things that really... um, echo Black nationalism. They didn't call themselves Black or Negro or colored. They said African. They chose that identity. Um, They also would have celebrations and parades um, with what they thought were African traditions or fruits or foods. And so they are showing pride in who they are, as well as showing pride um, in being an American. How and why did approximately 200 black men come to join the Charterite militia that quashed the 1841 Door Rebellion in Rhode Island, particularly after Charterite uh, opposition to black suffrage? So black men find themselves in a real quarry in the black in the uh, during the Door Rebellion. 
So Thomas Dore is really kind of spearheading and mobilizing the state's disenfranchised masses. So Rhode Island was one of the last states, um, northern states, that had a um, requirement for voting that was tied to property, about $134 worth of property. So most white men in the state can't vote. And Thomas Dore is really galvanizing that. That has been something that had been upsetting to white men in the state for a while. And Black men initially align themselves with the Dorites until the Dorites say that they want to ban on Black men voting. Um, And so they're pushed out of the movement because why would you fight for a movement that has specifically said they want to ban Black suffrage? You know, Thomas Dore tried to talk uh, the, the most of the white Dorites out of that. He was unsuccessful in doing so. And so the black men exit the Dorite movement and rightfully so. And they take a gamble. They take a gamble that if we support the state, maybe that support will be rewarded with an inclusion of black men in universal male suffrage. And their gamble was correct. Um, when the state revises its requirements for voting, they lift the ban on black men voting, as well as uh, in 1842. So this happens in 1842. They lift the ban on black men voting, and Rhode Island becomes a state of universal male suffrage, regardless of race. And at the same time, the institution of slavery is finally abolished. In the 1840 census, there had been listed five enslaved people. In 1842, the Rhode Island legislature abolishes the institution of slavery, along with passing universal male suffrage. What were the class dimensions of African-American opposition to and acceptance of underfunded separate schools in Rhode Island? And nearly two decades after the Dorr Rebellion, how did Rhode Island uh, African-Americans contribute to the Union cause during the Civil War? So the state didn't have a ban on um, black children attending public schools, but they also allowed local ordinances uh, to have a ban on black and white children attending the same school. So that meant effectively that the vast majority of the schools in Rhode Island were segregated, especially in Providence, Newport, and Bristol, where the majority of black people lived. Um, And, but there the, the fight to destroy the institution of, uh, of, to destroy segregation in the public schools was also split among African-Americans because for lower class African-Americans, which were the majority, they thought their children would fare better in a school that was exclusively for blacks, even if it was underfunded, because they wouldn't be um, put in a position to be pitted against white students for attention. Um, And that there were black teachers, uh, especially in Providence, at the black schools in Providence. And they were wondering, well, what is my child going to experience in a school with white students and white teachers? Um, Middle-class blacks were less concerned about that. And I think that that is a reflection of Uh, what they thought they could do on behalf of their children. They saw themselves as taxpayers and as taxpayers that they should have um, access to the best schooling and their children should have access to the best schooling. Um, And so you get someone like Thomas 
uh, like George Thomas Downing, which, a, which was a prominent local businessman, black businessman, who spearheads the campaign to integrate Rhode Island's public schools. Um, he began circulating pamphlets, holding public forums, and writing editorials in about 1857. Um, you don't see the desegregation of Rhode Island public schools at the city level um, until after the Civil War in 1866. So it's a decade. It's a decades long fight. Um, as far as African Americans in the Civil War, uh, like in the Revolutionary War, uh, African Americans were quick to volunteer. But like African Americans throughout the North, they can't volunteer until the Emancipation Proclamation allows for Black troops. Um, but once the Emancipation Proclamation is signed, there is a, a regiment from Rhode Island, and uh, that regiment, like Black troops throughout the country, not, is, not only are fighting a war, they're also fighting for equality within the U.S. Army in terms of pay and treatment and who their, um, and who their officers are. And so something interesting about the black uh, regiment that comes out of Rhode Island is that uh, one of the regiments has its own newspaper, um, their own self-published newspaper that they call Black Warriors. And it's a paper that is really asserting um, that they are not dependent or servile, that they have come to fight to destroy the institution of slavery. um, And that is first and foremost for them. Why are memorials to Rhode Island enslaved peoples? From the 1903 Bicknell Memorial to the 2012 to 14 Slaver Memorial at Brown University, mostly additive rather than fully incorporative. Well, the text of the Brown Memorial limits Rhode Islanders' participation in slavery to the slave trade and does not mention the commonality of slaveholding or the legacies of that practice. These omissions are particularly troubling considering the report of the Committee on Slavery and Justice that made clear that slave labor, as well as the slave trade, was instrumental in the building of the institution. Um, And so it focuses almost solely on slave trading, as if the whole of the economy wasn't focused on the business of slavery, that it wasn't just about the slave trade. It was about the West Indian bilateral trade. It was about the Negro cloth industry and all the subsidiary industries that were sustained by the business of slavery. The memorial at Brown recognizes that free and enslaved black people contributed to the building of the university and that some of the founding benefactors were involved in the slave trade. What it does not express is that without slave holding and the Atlantic and West Indian slave trades, Brown and other Ivy League institutions would not exist in their current form would not be as wealthy as they were, as dominant as they were. Um, As historian Craig Wilder has uh, recently argued, the academy never stood apart from American slavery. In fact, it stood beside it, right? And so that understanding that all of the wealth that was invested in a place like Brown was deeply invested in the business of slavery. So I have actually one final question for you. What's going on for you next? Are you working on any new projects, going on vacation? What's what's going on with you next? Well, I am working on a book about uh, 
Black people in what becomes the state of Wisconsin from the French colonial period in the 1720s through the American Civil War. Um, So again, looking at a small group of Black people in a place where people don't tend to think about Black people being and trying to see how they negotiated their lives. Um, I'm very much interested in understanding how Black people were able to survive and create community uh, in places where they were few. Well, thank you for being on the show today, Professor. We hope you uh, you hope you remember the New Books Network for the for that particular project. I absolutely will, and thank you for your very thoughtful questions. So the book is uh, Dark Work, The Business of Slavery in Rhode Island, um, out now by NYU Press. On behalf of uh, Professor Clark Pajara, the New Books Network's History Channel, this is Ryan Tripp signing off. Please tune in next time.